Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Since leaving the EU, the Department for International Trade has been a flurry of activity, with dozens of EU era agreements rolled over, new bilateral deals signed, and others in the offing. Among the biggest prizes, however, would be signing up to the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement on Trans-Pacific Partnership. Now, if you haven't heard of CPTPP, it's a trade bloc currently made up of 11 countries, including Japan, Australia, Canada and Mexico, it might sound counterintuitive for a rainy island in northwestern Europe to want to join a trade bloc centred on the Pacific, but it actually makes very good sense, as a report this week from our parent organisation, the Centre for Policy Studies, makes clear. For this week's episode of the CapEx podcast, we welcomed one of the contributors to that report, Anthony Mangnall. Since his election in 2019, Anthony has been the Conservative MP for Totnes, and he sits on the International Trade Committee, poring over the finer details of those post-Brexit trade agreements. Joining Anthony is economist-turned-journalist Sumeya Keynes. Sumeya is the Britain Economics Editor at The Economist, and until recently co-hosted Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade. Who better then to talk us through the ins and outs of the CPTPP and what it might mean for Britain? So, uh, Sumeya, Anthony... Thanks very much for being on the CapEx podcast. We'll dive straight in. So the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. Anthony, you wrote a piece in The Telegraph earlier this week describing it as a slam dunk for Britain. I mean, how big a deal is this for the UK in, in both senses of the word? Well, CPTPP is a huge deal for the country because it is the first significant trading bloc that we can join after leaving the European Union. We are signing trade deals at a rate of knots and we're confounding expectations in this area. But CPTPP is the biggest block of trading countries um, that we want to be able to try and join. And it is going to have a significant share of global GDP. And that to us is a real, to me, is a really attractive place to join. Mm-hmm. So as an economist, I mean, what are you looking for when you look at these kinds of deals? Obviously, the UK hasn't actually joined yet. I mean, is the percentage of global GDP that a block covers the thing we ought to be looking at? Is it value adds? I mean, what, what, should, what sort of stats do you look at and think, right, those are the important things? Yeah, so the, um, I think the, the Department for International Trade did an impact assessment um, of you know, looking at the effects of joining 
the CPTPP, and um, they didn't find astronomical uh, effects on the UK economy. I think it was something like, was it 0.08? Um, point zero eight? Point zero zero eight, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Zero, okay, well, we can... <laughs> no, no, 0.08, sorry, you're we right. We can yeah, argue about whether it was yeah. a small number or a very small number. <laughs> a tenth um, of a percent, basically. Sure, yeah. so it, I think we're all kidding ourselves if we think this is going to light the UK economy on fire. Um, so... You know, with that, with that kind of framing um, in mind, I mean, clearly this is a very important deal politically, right? Um, and I think it's politically important for both sides, right? You know, as just mentioned, there is this desire um, for the UK to be this buccaneering free trader, signing lots and lots of deals. The CPTPP would be a significant new deal that um, you know the EU was not part of the of the CPTPP lots of the deals that the UK has been negotiating are effectively rolling over um, the EU's old deals this would be a new one so mm -hmm. that that's a big deal um, and also I think it would be politically um, interesting for the CPTPP members um, as it would really move this deal from being a, a regional block um, around the Asia-Pacific um, to more of a global deal. Um, they could prove that they, they can include a, a European partner. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I mean, Anthony, there are 11 signatories as it is. I'll just very quickly run through them for our listeners. They are sort of from West to East, Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore, Brunei, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Chile, Peru, Mexico and Canada. So it's already an, an enormous geographical sort of swathe that it covers. And what is a Western European country doing trying to join this uh, this group of countries. Well, I mean, Canada is obviously also uh, a member of it. I know it bridges both sides of it, but, and, and Ecuador and the European Union members, uh, I think a EU commissioner only last week said that the, that the EU should consider joining it. Um, I think it's about global trade. I think it's about, we can talk about numbers, and I actually just want to touch on this, is that you're absolutely right, you know, that it is a small number of initial value joining CPTPP, but the point is, is that trade deals aren't static. They evolve and grow over time, and it's not just about numbers in terms of GDP. It's also about the agreements we can get on environment. It's also about the benchmarking we get, can get on digital trade. It's also about the defence and development agreements that we can get, all of which I think are part of global Britain's ambitions. You know, we have to use global trade to counter some of the forces that are going to destabilise the world, to contain the Chinas, to find ways and solutions through some of the most intractable problems that the world faces. And trade has always, through history, been a benefit to doing so. So you know, I think it's right the UK is looking to do so. And of course, we're going to be the first country to join that new block. And obviously, that, to me, is pretty exciting. But actually, it offers that opportunity for us to play a key role in that region, as well as be a pathfinder for other countries who are wanting to join. Um, yeah, Sima, I mean, how uh, how does how do countries in a block like CPTPP exert their influence if it doesn't include China? It's the sort of elephant in the room. You have the largest economy in Asia by far, the second largest economy in the world. I mean, how significant can it be if it doesn't include them in it? I mean, they wanted to exceed originally, I think, but then decided against it. Or... Yeah, so it, it might be worth just going back um, to look at the history of this deal. So um, it started out with a, a group of um, Asian countries um, wanting to essentially rationalise some of the, the trade deals that they already had between each other, um, but also create this very high standards agreement. Um, and then the US, uh, under the Obama administration, was essentially looking around for something to achieve its strategic interests um, when it came to China, right? Yeah. And so then the US kind of joined um, 
and it became this very important strategic vehicle um, for writing the new rules of the road, right? It would be a way to, you know, put the mark in the sand and say, um, okay, China isn't in today, but this is this is the direction of travel. This needs to be the direction of travel because over time, the idea was that the U.S. would agree a trade deal with the EU, and then maybe at some point in the future, everyone could join together in this massive, massive agreement um, and essentially agree new rules to um, overcome the problems associated with there being um, gridlock at the World Trade Organization, which was the you know the, the kind of is supposed to be the main forum for agreeing new new global deals. So the point wasn't. Um, so there's always been a kind of problem with CPTPP, right, which is that the idea was that you would write new rules and eventually China would sign up. The problem is that there isn't really a mechanism for getting China to sign up to these new rules. You know, the, the important rules are rules on state-owned enterprises. Um, uh, I don't think anyone thinks that China's anywhere close to meeting, um, you know, uh, Western yeah. rules on, on data or, uh, or also intellectual property was another one as well yeah I mean China's made some improvements there but um, yeah still pretty pretty far away um, uh, so there isn't any mechanism for bringing China on board and that kind of we can talk for hours and hours about this but that was that frustration was part of why the Americans um, kind of walked away from it and now are not reconsidering joining it they're kind of um, using other mechanisms. And so there is this question of how effective this thing can be um, in getting China to sign up. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree, couldn't disagree with you on any of this stuff. And I think it is interesting that China has in indicated recently that they're sort of thinking about joining, but the reality is that they're never going to be able to meet the standards and the expectations to be able to join that group. But the other thing that is interesting in the region is the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership Group, which does have China in. You've preempted my next question. <laughs> I, I, I'm really I, I'm sorry. You can get, go back to if you like, but like. And I think what has been interesting in the report that we've done with a set of the policy studies on this, looking looking east, is is the fact that when we were talking to other countries and ambassadors and trade experts from different countries, there was a big effort for them to say, actually, we want to look at diversifying our supply chains. We want to be able to create a block of commonality in how we approach things. We want to look beyond the World Trade Organization, as already been said, because there is so much gridlock and deadlock. And I think that offers the opportunity, but I, I still look at the countries that are indicating their willingness to join, from Korea to Thailand to Vietnam to now Ecuador. Um, who knows if the Americans will ever be able to get over those hurdles? I suspect not for the short term, because they've got some clauses that they took out of the original agreement of the Trans-Pacific Partnership that were frozen out. They're very unlikely to try and join the CPTPP without asking for those 11 clauses to be included. We're unlikely to agree on those. So, you know, it's, it is, it is going to be hard to see some of the bigger players joining in the short term. But if you can get the smaller players in the region and you can diversify those supply chains, you can diversify the way in which we benchmark standards, provide an alternative to the World Trade Organization, there's real value to it. Mm. But, I mean, uh, Anthony mentioned RECP there. RCEP, yeah. Um, what's my question, a slightly technical question, is how does it kind of, how do these things interact with each other? So Peru and Chile, for example, are members of Mercosur. Mexico and Canada are members of NAFTA. What? Oh, USMCA, yeah, sorry. Yeah. So I should uh, recap that. Maybe, for maybe. It's yeah, been yeah. renamed, the so, USMCA. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, it's RCEP and then the USMCA. RCEP and the USMCA. Uh, <laughs> You can tell who's the trade expert who isn't here. So, I mean, uh, yeah, how, do, how does membership of multiple trade blocks affect the way that these things work? 
If you're a company, then lots and lots of different trade deals is a bit of a nightmare. Um, essentially, what you want to do is you want to... Let's just think about trading goods for, for a minute. Um, you want to make a product and you want to know that your product will be... Um, sellable um, in lots in as many different countries as possible and what you don't really want is lots and lots of different rules for each country right so it does make sense um, instead of having eight different bilateral deals um, with various countries to have one deal which says okay this is the amount of content that you can have from your country and the region for it to qualify for these um, for these lower tariffs um, so there is a kind of rationalisation objective. It does it does really make sense to have as many countries in in an agreement as possible, um, because also from a kind of you know purist economics perspective, really what you want to do is avoid um, discrimination, right? You you want to avoid um, it's very inefficient, it's annoying. Um, you want to avoid this kind of um, uh, faff of not sort of having to contend with with all these different regimes. Um, so the, the trend over time, you know, in the, in the 90s, early 2000s, there was this big trend of this, um, this surge in smaller, narrower bilateral agreements. Mm -hmm. And now there seems to be more of an effort to try and rationalize those into bigger deals. Um, and that does make sense. Uh, but of course, the more countries you have in the group, the harder it is to get consensus. Right. So that's the, the limit on that. I mean, Anthony, what's your view on the, the uh, balance between the UK striking lots of bilateral trade deals and being part of these kind of blocks. I mean, our strategy since leaving the EU seems to me to have been to trumpet the number of individual different countries that we're signing deals with. But would it be more significant for us um, economically and diplomatically to just join a few bigger organisations? Or can you do? Can you walk and chew gum at the same time? Uh, so as has already been said, I think you're absolutely right. Like the rollover deals are basically irrelevant. There's no change to them. That We shouldn't hype this up. We should really be talking about the new deals from scratch. The irony in trying to join CPTPP is that we're already doing bilateral agreements with some of the member states ahead of time. So, for example, the Japan agreement was a rollover agreement, but we expanded it to actually include more on digital trade. Some of which, actually, I think, and I'm, I'm just not good enough on the detail on digital trade. I'm trying to get up to speed on this. But, um, you know, some of which is truly, you know, groundbreaking and can be a global benchmark. But the Australia and New Zealand, the Australia free trade agreement that we've got now, we've got the documents. Those on the International Trade Committee, like me, are now busily reading through the 2,000 pages and turning to experts to try and get a better understanding. That's great that that's come out, but we're going to see New Zealand. We've now got a digital partnership in, in, in the offing with Singapore. We're already sort of signing bilateral agreements with quite a lot of the members of CPTPP. And I suspect, you know, you're going to see this in the same way with the Gulf cooperation community, which you, we may want to do something immediately with the bloc, but we may have to start with immediate bilateral agreements to get to that process. I don't think it, it, it is slightly chicken and egg, because whenever I've spoken to experts in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, they're always saying, no, it doesn't have to be a bilateral agreement first. But actually, it does seem to me that this helps oil the wheels to get us into that, uh, into that block. So I think I'm afraid for our trade negotiators, for our experts, for our analysts, there's going to be a lot of reading, a lot of work, um, because we're probably going to end up doing both. Mm -hmm. I think there are some really interesting negotiating dynamics here, right? So if you're a member of the CPTPP, then what you want to do is kind of all gang up on the UK, right? You want to all negotiate as one big block. Um, you know, the UK is clearly quite keen to join this agreement, right? There's a political imperative as well as an economic one. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're stronger together. Um, and whereas the UK might want to sort of try and um, go bilaterally to kind of set precedents with each 
with each member to sound out how those bigger negotiations might go. Now, I'm an analyst, I'm not a trade negotiator, so I'm sure someone will tell me how what I've just said is complete rubbish and, and actually you want to go for the big, for the big um, prize at first, but, but that would be one way of looking at it. It's, it's really interesting. Crawford Faulkner, who's, um, who's advising the Department of International Trade, says, you know, the key indicator of a successful trade deal is when both sides are pissed off. And, um, you know, I, I totally agree with you. I think, you know, there, there are, in the bilaterals, there is an opportunity for us to get something right on the minutiae, to do something that we can then use as an example. And this is, this is one of the reasons I've always argued in Parliament, that we shouldn't be worried about bilateral agreements always being rolled over and same, rolled over to be similar in every instance with other countries. More often than not, I don't think they are. Um, I agree that a block has a great deal of power over us when we want to join, and we're very keen. You know, being overly keen about this is not a ne- great negotiating tactic, um, especially when people like me are writing reports with, with, with the team from CPS. But it does seem to me that at the moment the bilateral agreements are preceding any of the, the more uh, in-depth negotiations and conversations that are being had on CPTPP, and that does offer us a, 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 an immediate stepping stone and an advantage. Yeah, I just want to pick up on something we um, Samara said earlier that it was as much to do with, or it was as to do with kind of geopolitics as just pure economics. And how do you see the balance there in terms of, is it signalling to China that other countries are, you know, willing to join together against them in some sense? I mean, I think we've got to be careful here because we, you know, we are always going to have some. We're always going to have to have a relationship with China. There's no, you can't isolate China in the twenty in the twenty first century. Um, and I, a few months back, and it's really colloquial and simple, but they I came up with a sort of three C's, which was compete, contain, and challenge China. And I think this is part of containing China and trying to elevate the standards. And if we can get it right, we can, as I said at the beginning, you can diversify those supply chains. You can offer countries like New Zealand, which are predominantly dependent on exports to China um, and Chinese money coming in. We can offer them an opportunity to look in a different direction and to have a block that they can rely on. And I think that's valuable because the value to the Chinese state is to always have a growing middle class. If that doesn't continue, then that has a problem. And the last bet on this is that, from my point of view, is that this is also perhaps the answer to the one, one, road, one belt, one road sort of policy. And I think it kind of brings together like-minded nations as much as they can be when, you know, it's Singapore and Brunei and the UK. You wouldn't necessarily always think they're completely like-minded. But there is a real advantage for having the same outlook on trade, for the same outlook on digital, the same outlook on environment, the same outlook on geopolitical, which I think many of those countries do. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. 
Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Yeah. Can we just zoom out a bit to the kind of general global um, trading picture? I mean, you've both talked about kind of gridlock at the WTO. When Liam Fox went to to be the UK nominee or tried to be the nominee, uh, he complained a lot about how little progress, how barriers were going up. I mean, if you were, as if you were from a free trade perspective, are you, are you kind of optimistic about the the picture at the moment, particularly after what's happened during COVID? Oh, um, it's hard to be optimistic about um, the World Trade Organization shaking off all of its problems and, and becoming a kind of vibrant forum for new rulemaking. Um, and that's, you know, I think a lot of the time people frame that through US-China conflict. Actually, the problems are kind of much broader than that. They're, they're really, really difficult to solve. You've essentially got um, a bunch of developing countries who think that they should get concessions from richer countries and richer countries don't think that they should give them um, and that doesn't exactly pave the way to a to a grand bargain um, so yeah so I, I I guess I'm not particularly optimistic about the WTO there's an uh, there's another problem which is that the WTO's um, system of solving disputes is kind of broken um, that the UK's position seems to be kind of okay with that for now at least um, I think the future for the trade environment is going to be, it's going to involve a lot of muddling through, right? We, we've kind of lost the framework that we had that was set up in the mid-1990s. Um, is this the GATT? So the WTO was formed in the mid-1990s and it was the successor to the GATT, the, okay. the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. So we, we've lost that framework. And obviously there's been a lot of tension between the US and China. There are a lot of trade barriers between those two countries right now. Um, trade relations between those two countries are not being governed by the rules of the World Trade Organization as they were before um, Donald Trump arrived. Um, but I think the rest of the world, we haven't actually seen properly, you know, there haven't been equivalents to US and China happening elsewhere in the world. So it's not the case that um, we've just descended into anarchy, right? Um, which well, is, that's reassuring. It's great. <laughs> um, so, you know, one shouldn't be, one shouldn't sort of claim that the end of the trade world is nigh, um, but it's also quite hard to be optimistic. I, I mean, so I, I'm, I'm really with you and I'm really sorry that, you know, Liam Fox didn't, wasn't successful in his bid to be uh, sec gen or whatever, whatever, uh, director general. But no, she, she is and has got a huge task ahead of her to do this. And I agree with you because I'm not particularly optimistic about it either, but I'm not particularly... Um, optimistic about many of the plurilateral bodies that are in existence from the UN to the WTO. But I think, you know, we've got, eight, we've got 18, 20 minutes into this interview and we haven't mentioned the pandemic. The pandemic has clearly shifted our view and our way about how we trade and about, you know, even from vaccine creation to distribution. And I think this has had an impact on the way in which the UK and way in which countries in general think about producing, exporting uh, and doing that uh, and, and being able to, to trade amongst its uh, its its groups. I agree about the point on dispute mechanism as well. This is going to be a real problem until we can do it. I mean, ultimately, Donald Trump and China have done an enormous amount of damage to the WTO. And it's, you know, I'm not saying it's equal, but it's it's pretty equal how much damage they've done. And until we can find something that I think perhaps provides an alternative, 
I happen to think that might be CPTPP if more members join. But of course, more members mean more discussions, which means more disagreement. And maybe this is just a self-perpetuating problem that we face wherever we go, but we've got to try, haven't we? Do you think the, the sort of profusion of regional things is a response to that failure at the WTO, or is it going to, some of it precedes that? No, no, it's absolutely a response. I mean, there's been gridlock in the WTO for, for a while now, and, um, you know, it, I think for a while there was... Oh, we're getting really into the weeds of, of trade policy here, but um, for a while um, there was a, a frustration that some, some members of the WTO weren't um, the multilateralists that, say, the US was, right? So the US would claim that, you know, um, it its priority was getting agreements at the WTO, right? Um, meanwhile, loads of other countries were just going off and agreeing bilaterals and creating all this complexity that was, was inefficient. Um, but then, eventually, um, the US worked out that, no, it's really, really difficult to, um, to get beyond this, this, grid, this gridlock. And, and that's, you know, the, the TPP, as it was then called, was part of that um, strategy to, to overcome that. Do you think we've drowned your listeners in enough acronyms on, uh, yeah. on different trading bodies? I think we should it's publish a glossary <laughs> yeah. with, with this. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've fallen foul of a few acronyms already myself, so, you know. <laughs> I mean, um, Anthony, in terms of, you know, the, your party's economic agenda, how, how big a, a part of it is trade, really, compared to reforming the domestic economy? I mean, I think it's huge, but I also think there's a huge... Um, there's a, there's a massive lack of understanding about trade deals, and and I you know I hold my hands up to this as well. You know I didn't expect when I got elected that I would end up on the trade committee. I mean I did put myself forward and, and ran a fearsome campaign to get on it, um, but it's been a steep learning curve because obviously you've got 650 MPs who are deeply concerned about a free trade agreement, say on the impact of their fishing industry or their farming industry, two things that are massive in my own constituency. Yeah. And we've got very little time to be able to impact the direction of the negotiations as MPs, just as backbench MPs. And we have very little time to be able to scrutinise these things. So, you know, the question is how much, and we'll see with when we'll see with uh, this when uh, the free trade agreement with Australia is laid before Parliament, and we have 21 days to be able to scrutinise it. Well, we've got 21 days to be able to scrutinise it. We can't change anything in it. There's nothing we can do to change it. And you wouldn't expect any Parliament to be able to have that prerogative. Certainly it doesn't happen in the Canadian, New Zealand or Australian parliaments. Um, but I suspect what you'll find in that first debating session on the Australia Free Trade Agreement is that people will suddenly start picking out more and more of an interest in trade and it will become much more of a topic of, a topic of conversation. And any minute now we're meant to get the agreement with New Zealand or at least the uh, agreement in principle with New Zealand. Um, and you know, it's going to go on from there. I think you know, our trade negotiators are moving at pace beyond expectation, I might add. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that is mentioned in the CPS report that we should all read um, is that there's a lot of kind of scaremongering and myth-making about trade deals. I mean, every time we sign or about to sign a trade deal, the NFU comes out and suggests that, that we're all going to start eating Frankenstein foods. And, or in the Australia deal, I think it was a tsunami of beef was going to come onto this short. I mean, how much do you think of, um, Samara, how much do you think of that is just, is just pure special pleading? And how much is a legitimate concern about standards being lowered and us poor consumers having worse quality stuff? Yeah, I mean, trade negotiations are political things and the response to trade negotiations are political. Um, it's difficult to disentangle um, legit kind of um, concerns about competition and concerns about unfair competition or competition that actually consumers um, 
won't like. Um, so I would say, so just, just picking on kind of farms and food standards, um, uh, you know, this is, this is one area where just, just getting into the, the, the weeds of the CPTPP, um, so one of the huge, huge battles between Europe and America over food regulation has been over the precautionary principle, which is about um, essentially the burden of proof, right? Mm -hmm. Should you have to prove that something is unsafe um, or is it... Um, so is, should you allow trade unless you can prove that it's unsafe or should you allow trade... Um, only if, hang on, let me get this right. Only if you can uh, prove it is definitely safe. Only if you, exactly, yeah. yeah, okay. Which is a very, very high... Right, burden, and so, right? so the, Europe, the European approach and, um, is that we only trade it if we can prove that it, that it is safe, right? Um, and so the kind of, the debate about food standards, um, you know, you can pick out examples where, um, where, you know, American negotiators will say that the British or the EU stance isn't science-based, um, and I, I guess what you need is kind of um, a sense of where the British public is and where they want that precautionary principle to, to go, right? right. Um, and so, you know, um, I think there's a legit, you know, you can kind of argue both ways. Um, <laughs> I have my own preferences. Um, and I, I think it's kind of important not to assume that the British public wants to go one way or the other, right? We're st I think, you know, what you were saying about a learning curve, right? We're still really feeling out these processes. You know, Britain's kind of just inherited a lot of regulatory capacity that previously had been done at an EU level, right? In some sense, we, we kind of need to um, work out what our regulatory preferences are on a bunch of things, right? And, and this is a really important one. I, I'm, I'm so pleased you're saying this. I mean, actually, there are two there are two areas that, uh, firstly, when we come to our negotiating objectives ahead of starting any agree or any agreement or discussion with another country, we need to be much clearer about where we're going and what we want to see in the process of those negotiations. And we haven't really had that, and it's a big annoyance to us on the committee. I mean, the two things that come up time and time again are chlorinated chicken and hormone-injected beef, I was beef, about right? to say, yeah. How do and you sell that to the public? Well, you see, the thing is, is that to, to even allow it to sell into the UK, you have to change the SPS standards, and that requires a vote in Parliament. The SPS stands for, and just because we can't go on with these acronyms, is sanitary and phytosanitary standards, right? Um, there is no chance that any of the trade deals that we sign, and not that an America trade deal is likely to be forthcoming, it's much more likely to be at a, at a state level with the UK rather than a, a federal level, um, there is no chance you're going to see hormone-injected beef or chlorinated chicken in the UK and in its markets because our domestic laws don't allow for it. And to change that, there has to be a vote in Parliament. And there's just no chance that any rural Conservative MP or any rural Labour MP or SNP uh, a member of parliament or Lib Dem member, member of parliament is going to vote for that. So, I, you know, I think we've got to be clear about, you know, there are some special pleadings from, from various organisations, um, but there is also a, a need for government to be able to listen to them because in certain instances, you know, I think the NFU have got certain things really quite right and they've actually informed us about things that I don't think were on the table beforehand. So it is important to get that. I just when it comes to the, the safety element and all of this, you know, I want consumers to have choice. And I want to make sure they're also safe. But, you know, we can look at labelling and DEFRA is doing that at the moment. But the flip side to this is that most of the time we look at these trade deals, we only talk about the impact of the imports. You know, we, I, I represent an amazing part in South Devon. 
I have some of the greatest farmers, of course, we all say this, but they produce fantastic beef, right? That beef is in demand around the world, and it can be in Australia. And the fact is that I talk to my farmers about the export potential, and I think DIT, the Department of International Trade, has done a really good job in actually picking up and recognising they need to help people export. And I think we have to look at trade both ways, as, as it says on the tin, make sure our farmers, our producers, our food and drink manufacturers recognise that they can export their produce and we can help them do that. And that, is, that has a benefit too. Yeah, I mean, we talk, uh, we've talked a lot, and you, you're right, that certain things sort of hog the, the conversation when we talk about trade deals, especially agricultural stuff, because it's, it's very easy to match. It's always supermarket shelves. Uh, but I mean, Samir, how much of this debate, is it slightly illusory to talk so much about goods when we're such a service-based economy? Is it simply because it's much easier for most people to kind of visualise? I mean, as a journalist, as an economist turned journalist, especially, you know how important it is to turn sort of abstract concepts into something that people can grasp. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely easier to write and talk about goods. Um, the trade barriers to goods tend to be, you know, tariffs are easy to talk about and they are common to lots of goods. <laughs> um, Labelling, product standards, those kinds of things. Services is much, is, is, is much more bitty. Um, the trade barriers are really, really tedious. Um, they are specific to <laughs> particular this industries. Uh, this <laughs> podcast is great. Um, no, service trade barriers are really annoying. They're no fun to talk about. Um, they're no fun to negotiate. Um, and they're really, really hard to negotiate as well because, you know, tariffs are often essentially just put up there to, to restrict trade. Um, Non-tariff barriers, so restrictions on trade and services like um, qualifications requirements or um, uh, other services, trade barriers, um, they're often put there for a reason that isn't just restricting trade, right? Mm-hmm. There's, you know, you don't want someone who's completely unqualified providing, you know, medical services or something. Um, and so those kinds of trade barriers are really, really difficult to dismantle. Um, and if you look at even in the single market in the European Union, one of the, the deepest trade agreements in the world, um, the single market in services is, is not complete, right? I mean, it's, it's better than anything else out there pretty much, but it's, it's not complete, right? And that just shows you how hard it is to have comprehensive um, coverage of trade and services and trade deals, right? So the, the, the CBTBP has kind of more services than, than your average agreement um, in it, but um, in general, trade deals tend to be more compre- comprehensive in terms of reducing trade barriers on goods, which is one reason why they get a bit more focus. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Anthony, just to finish off, because I know you have to run back to Parliament, such is an MP's life. I mean, how optimistic are you that the UK will be successful in its application? And, and when might we expect that to actually take place? Well, I mean, we're already underway with the sort of the initial stages. But of course, because we're the first ones to join, it is quite, it's quite a sort of, it's newfound territory for us. Listen, I am optimistic that we can join. I think, you know, we, we know... We know this much that we know this because we've signed agreements and bilateral agreements or in the process of coming up to it with agreements with with so many of the members already. So I think that's a pretty positive indicator. And all the countries that are there, they're very keen for us to join as well. I mean, I hope we're going to see pretty good progress this year. I think for me, the most important thing going forward is making sure that we're learning from the experiences of the Australia and New Zealand free trade agreements. We're learning from what we've done with Japan. We're learning from our, uh, our, our free trade agreement with the European Union. We're learning all the time to make sure we can shape this up and get it right because it is not you know it's not a quick fix and it's not a quick win just as we go we started off talking about the numbers right if we don't view trade deals as static and view them as evolving 
agreements, you can find a way in which you can continually add value. And I think that's something that we need to make sure our negotiators know, but we know as, as members of the public and as politicians and as experts and analysts. I would say that we want to be the first to join, but there are other countries yeah, who would Ecuador also like to be the first also, to join. Uh, yeah, so, you know, but I, think, I, I think, I think I, absolutely, I think no one else, though, is at the stage we are at, despite having indicated that they'd like to join. I mean, and also there is, uh, geo, I mean, one of the aspects of the report we also focus on is the geopolitical angle and, you know, what happens if Taiwan, which has now indicated again that it wants to join, you know, what happens in these scenarios? Um, it's it's going to be a really interesting organisation, not just economically, but geopolitically. All right. Well, this one clearly has a, a you know plenty to run and run. Um, Anthony Sumaya, thank you very much for joining us on the Capex podcast, and um, we will see you next time for an interview with Martin Van der Weyer on his new book, The Good, the Bad, and the Greedy. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.